0: if you're new we are going through a series called the big 12 uh the big 12 it's not uh talking about basketball instead we're looking at uh 12 major characters in the old testament and so we're looking at their stories uh we're looking at their examples and we're looking at how we see christ through them we believe as christians that um when we come to jesus in faith that the old testament isn't just some ancient story but rather it's our family lineage We believe that we learn more about ourselves when we look at the Old Testament. Um, it's, the Old Testament is kind of like our ancestry.com. And so we look at it and we get to discover, uh, who we are and where we've come from and the foundations that allowed us to get where we are. And so we've gone through, uh, Adam. Abraham, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, and so if you've missed any of those, please check out our website, and those, uh, those podcasts will be up there, um, so you can kind of catch up and, and get to see where we're at. Um, today, we are talking about the story of Ruth, uh, we're talking about the story of Ruth for Mother's Day, and so we're going to talk about uh, Ruth's story, her example, and then we're going to see some ways in which we see Christ through the story of Ruth. Uh, Ruth's story actually begins with not Ruth, but her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech. That's a interesting name, but they were from Bethlehem in Judah. And they had two sons, um, Chilion and Mahlon. And there was a famine in Bethlehem, which is kind of ironic because Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. And so the house of bread ran out of bread. And so they had to leave Bethlehem. And they became sojourners or travelers to a foreign land. And they went to Moab, which is on the other side of the Dead Sea. So they travel and they arrive at Moab. And Ruth has a husband and she has two sons. Shortly after she arrives in Moab, though, her husband Elimelech dies. Then her two sons marry. They marry uh, Orpah and also Ruth, two Moabite women and so uh, Naomi goes from sadness to, to to being joyful while they're in this land of Moab for 10 years, though, both of her sons die and she is left after 10 years with no husband and no sons and left alone with her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And she turns to them in sadness and overwhelmed at her circumstances and she tells them, I have nothing left for you. There is nothing left for you here with me. Even if I should have sons at this moment, would you wait until they were grown to marry? No. Go. Return to your family. Return to your people. Dwell with them. Worship again your God. They both refused. Orpah and Ruth said, No, we will stay. But Ruth urged them. And she said, no, leave, there is no hope, there is no future for you with me. And Orpah left, but Ruth persisted. Ruth said, I will not leave you. She said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi sees that Ruth is persistent, (laughs) that she will not leave. And so she hears that there has been once more bread in Bethlehem. She hears that God has visited his people. And so her and Ruth, Naomi and Ruth, leave Moab, and they go again to bethlehem or and uh, and as they arrive the people greet naomi they greet her and say is this naomi naomi turns them and she says don't call my naomi which means pleasantness but call me mara which means bitter she says call me mara for the lord almighty has dealt very bitterly with me i went away full and the lord has brought me back empty why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. As Naomi stays in Bethlehem, her and Ruth settle down. And Naomi tells Ruth of their kinsman, of someone that is close. So Ruth goes out and in early in the morning she rises to go find food for Naomi's old and a widow. Ruth goes out into the fields and she begins to glean In the land of Israel, um, there was a law that said that those that were working the land had to leave area and the edges for the poor. That when the poor would come around, they could have something to eat. And so Ruth is going along and she is gleaning, she's taking from the leftovers. She's working early in the morning. Now, a man named Boaz comes from Bethlehem and he comes into the field and he takes notice of Ruth. He asks his young servants, who is this woman who is coming through? And his servants tell him all about Ruth, about who she is, about what she's done. And Ruth approaches her. He says, blessed are you. For you have, I've heard what you have done for your mother-in-law and how you have stayed and you have left your people. May the Lord who you've trust spread his wings from underneath you. He says, don't visit any other land. Don't go to any other field lest you be attacked and assaulted. But instead, stay near my men. Stay near my young women. And you will be provided for. During the break in the day, he allows Ruth to come and eat with his people. And he provides abundance for her. After his meal, he turns to his servants and he tells them, leave some sheaves on the ground for her. And at the end of Ruth's day of harvesting... She goes back and she has ten times the average amount that workers had. As you can imagine, Naomi is shocked and says, Where have you been gleaning? Where have you been at? And Ruth tells Naomi, I've been at Boaz. She says, He is our redeemer. He is our kinsman. Says, all throughout the both the wheat and the barley season, Ruth went day after day, waking up early in the morning and staying late until the evening that she might provide for her and her mother-in-law. She worked all this time. and She stayed in Boaz's field because he protected her, because he guarded her, because he provided for her. It's after seasons have gone by that Naomi comes up with a plan. And she turns and she tells Ruth, this is what we'll do because you need a future. You need to find safety and we're going to get you a husband and so she hatches a plan and she tells her, what you're going to do is when Boaz is at the threshing floor and after he's eaten, after he's had his fair share to drink, when he goes to sleep, find and mark the spot where he's slept. I want you to go and uncover his feet and I want you to lay down at his feet. And when he wakes up, do whatever it is that he tells you to do. Naomi or Ruth says, as you have said, so I will do. And she obeys her mother-in-law and she goes She finds Boaz uh, after he's had a very merry time and his belly is full. He falls asleep on a grain pile. And she uncovers his feet and lays down. It's about midnight that Boaz wakes up startled. Sees a young woman at his feet and says, who are you? She says, it is I, Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. Good, let him do it, but if it is not, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Ruth slept until the mor- until the morning, and Boaz woke her up, and they both left so as to be above reproach, so that no one would s- would see and, and think and not think wise of her character, not think well of her character. So they go and, and Ruth tells Naomi how the plan went. And Naomi tells her, wait, be patient, because the man will figure out and and hatch his plan and and finish it today. Boaz, early in the morning, rises, and he goes to the very gate of the town where everyone was. And he sees the other kinsman redeemer walking by, and he tells him to come. Come over here, friend. Let us talk. Boaz lays before the other man the plan. He says, there is a land that you uh you can redeem would you like to redeem this land and there's 10 other elders that have gathered around to watch in this proceedings and the the other kinsman redeemer says yes i i'd like to i'd like to redeem the land he says but there's this one thing you have to redeem also ruth the Moabite woman the other kinsman redeemer says i can't i can't redeem lest i impair my own inheritance and at this boaz sets forward and says i will redeem He takes his sandal off, which was a sign of making a covenant in that time. And he declares and promises in the midst of all the elders of the people and says that I will redeem both the land and also Ruth, who you know to be a worthy woman. And that day they were married. Boaz and Ruth were married. Naomi, the people came to Naomi and told her, you are blessed, blessed by the Lord because of Ruth. Because what God has done, because he has turned and smiled his face upon you, and because Ruth is as unto you seven sons. Ruth and Boaz have a child named Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David, through whom the Messiah would come. This is the story of of Ruth. So, what do we learn from Ruth? Ruth. Right. Let's turn and look at some examples. Ruth is packed full. I don't think there's a single negative illustration of Ruth's life in the entire book. And so there are tons of positive examples just brimming forth in Ruth's character. So just a couple. We see in Ruth humility. Ruth, instead of having an entitled mentality in coming and demanding something, she humbles herself underneath Boaz. Right, she realizes Boaz comes and he he provides for her and he protects her, and she doesn't say, "Well, it's right; you should do that." No, instead, she's humbled before Boaz and says, "Why should you show favor upon me? Who am I?" And so you see a, a humble attitude. Not only that, but think about this: she's in her early twenties and she's spending her days for for at least a year waking up early and staying late. Why? That she might serve her mother in law. She could have left, but instead she takes the model and, and the posture of a servant, of a slave, that she might benefit her mother. And so we see a challenge in there to us. Is it, do we feel entitled that we're owed, or are we willing to take the role of a servant? Especially when it's not obligatory, but when we choose to. We see that example in Ruth. Not only do we see her humility, but we see her thankfulness, right? She approaches Boaz and she shows utter thankfulness at the generosity. Instead of demanding what she thinks is due her, she instead realizes that this is sheer grace, that Boaz choosing to show his favor and choosing to love her and choosing to care for her is is grace unto her. Him providing abundance, right? Remember, she got 10 times what the average worker got and she was thankful for that she didn't instead say well it's because i'm good, it's because I worked hard it 's because I left all that I'm owed this." No instead she realizes and says, "Who am i what What have I done that I should be given these things?" And so you see an attitude of utter thankfulness for what has been given her. She realizes the gifts that have been entrusted to her are are that a gift they're not a result of her performance or her good deeds, but instead God is God is giving grace. Uh, Another huge theme that we see in the book of Ruth is this idea of what is beauty, right? The idea of what true beauty is. Um, The Bible talks about that Ruth's beauty wasn't merely external, but it was internal. It was her character. We see this in a... It's really interesting. In the Hebrew Bible... um, they have a different order than we do, right? So when you open up our Bible and you find the the space where Ruth is, it's not near, I mean, it's not right after Proverbs, but in the Hebrew Bible, um, actually, Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs, right? And the last book, the last chapter in Proverbs, talks about the excellent wife, the worthy woman. and And the whole book of Proverbs is talking about the wise and discerning man, about the man that chooses wisdom and follows after wisdom. Isn't it interesting that the book of Ruth then talks about the man of wisdom, Boaz, and then discloses what an excellent woman of virtue Ruth is? Proverbs thirty-one ten through 12, and also 25 through 31, it says, An excellent wife who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You notice that part, that last part, it says, and let her works praise her in the gates. When Boaz goes before, he he talks and he discloses that all the men of this town know that you are a worthy woman. And so what we see is that her beauty wasn't simply external. But it was adorning of, of the internal character. She exemplified what first Peter three three through five says, it says do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And our, our culture is so desperate to hear this that you are beautiful not because of what you look like but because of, of who you are and who God declares that you are inside. We live in a culture that says, if you look like this, if you act like this, you must do these things in order to be beautiful. And we need to go back to what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that, that God is the one that deems and creates beauty. And He creates beauty through the character of submission and of trusting Him through a woman who says, what really makes me beautiful isn't what I wear. It's not the makeup that I have. It's not the dress that I have. But it's instead the attitude and the character and the submission of trusting that Christ is my worth. Christ is what matters. And Ruth exemplifies this. She shows us what beauty looks like. One of the other things that we see, um, the... in in the book of Ruth is the idea of of relationship. Now, the book of Ruth isn't a guide to dating, right? It's not Old Testament Dating 101, um, but it does have some some helpful suggestions, right? So when we look at Ruth, you couldn't find two more opposite people, right? You have a Moabite, a foreigner. She is young, single. She doesn't have kids. Um, She's probably physically attractive, all these things. And you have Boaz, who is older he is wealthy, not poor. And, uh, and he is a national Israelite. Their cultures are vastly different. Their upbringings are entirely different. But yet they're drawn together. Yet they are able to come together as one. Why? Why? Because they, at essence, were the same. It's because there was an internal beauty and there was an internal character that drew them together. We see it too. It wasn't just instantly, right? I don't think that Boaz looked at Ruth and all of a sudden it was love at first sight because what you see is that there's a season, right? There's seasons where where Boaz gets to see her character, right? He gets to see that Ruth is waking up early and that she's going and she's not afraid to work hard, that she's going to provide for her mother-in-law and that she comes in early, she stays late, she puts in the time because she has compassion and care, that she's not going to quit, that she's not Alpha herself. And so Boaz sees the character in her. And she likewise gets to see the compassion and the care for Boaz, that Boaz has. Not simply towards her, but, but the idea of how he treats his servants. Of how he interacts with his people. Of how he knows and how he loves and how he cares for. And so in this we do have some, like I said, it's not, the book is not intended to say here's dating one on one, But it does give us some ideas that, that in relationships there is a discerning process. There's a sifting process. And then ultimately what should bind people together isn't their culture, isn't their preferences, isn't the chemistry, but ultimately it's the character. It's the desire to submit and to honor Christ. To see that God is ultimately what brings, what draws, what what holds people together. And man, this is so, so needed for us. Because our culture is saturated. That... Your spouse should meet your needs and that this life is about you instead of realizing that you're called to die to yourself and serve. That you're called to be committed. Not just when that person is fits you, but even when they're different. And it ultimately, that it's the character, it's the character of a person that makes a relationship work. That as as two and two people are drawn together and they find their lives submitted into Christ, that that is ultimately what will lead to a, to a healthy relationship, not simply because they have the same friends, they have the same hobbies, they have the same likes or dislikes or favorite TV shows, but rather the fact that they both are bonded together on the deepest possible level with Jesus Christ. And that, that draws them and keeps them together. The, the last thing, the last example that I think that we need to learn from Ruth and and it's, it kind of defines the whole thing, um, is that Ruth demonstrates what it means to be committed. right? She demonstrates what it means to be a committed woman. Uh, there's this word that's all throughout the book of Ruth, and it's it's called hesed. Right? In the Old Testament, hesed. Um, it means, our English has a hard time of defining it, um, but it means uh, a bunch of different things. So, um, if I can actually find it. Yeah, here we go. So it means kindness faithfulness, mercy, goodness, loyalty, and steadfast love, right? All of these words are wrapped up in this one word of, of hesed, and it's this commitment. Now think about what did Ruth actually commit to? I mean, think about this. She's She's in her early 20s. She has grown up and been raised in Moab, and she marries into this family that has come in. Her husband's dead, and she has no hope of a future husband with her mother-in-law and every voice every voice in her culture would have told her stay think about it i mean her the biggest dreams and hope for her was that she would marry a husband and that she would have children that was that was what defined her as a woman in that day you know in this culture in our culture we have many things that we think defines what a woman is whether it's having a career or being a mom or marrying or what you know whatever it is we have all these different kind of Things that define what are being a woman. In that culture, what defined being a woman, what gave them identity and status, was that they were married and that they produced children. What does Ruth do? Ruth says, I'm willing to give that up. I'm willing to give up my family. I'm willing to give up my culture. I'm willing to give up the 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 whole system that I used to worship in. Why? Right. She she commits Drastically, I mean, listen. Listen to this again in one uh, in, in Ruth one seventeen. It says, "Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you." Man, that's commitment, right? That's some pretty pretty stark, hard commitment. She's not going on, you know, like she's giving up her dreams, her ideas of what a future are. She's dying to herself in this moment. She's giving all of those over. Why? Why would she risk all of those things, everything that she known all that her family and her culture was telling her? Because of love. Ultimately this idea of Hesed is that it's a loyal love. It's a committed, steadfast love. Remember, both Ruth and Orpa were there, right? She had two daughters. And what happened? She urged both of them to leave. She told Ruth and Orpah, go, leave. You know, I have no, there's no future with me. Naomi exhibits this kind of selfless love. Naomi says, listen, I don't see any future with me. So you guys should just leave. And Orpah, they both, they both say, no, we're going to stay, sit fast. But ultimately, ultimately, Orpah left. Right, She left. She went back to her family. She went back to worshiping her God. She went back and and ultimately found her hope in possibly having a husband and having children. But Ruth stayed. Why? Ultimately, at the end of the day, their commitments revealed what they loved. Right? You are committed to what you love. Whatever your commitment, whenever you look at your life, what are you committed to? Because it demonstrates what you love. Ultimately, what Orpah really loved, what she found of of ultimate value was her idea of her future, of her family, of her God, of her future as a, a getting a, you know, her ability to see getting a husband and having children. What did Ruth ultimately commit to? What did she ultimately love? Well, when Boaz is talking to Ruth later on, he says, you've come and you've taken shelter underneath the God of Israel, under his wings ultimately what ruth found and was committed to was not simply naomi but it was god and because of her commitment to god it changed everything i mean right what if what if she hadn't think about what Orpa what orpah missed because she didn't ruth is now part of the people of god She is saved because of her faith and her commitment to something she couldn't see or understand. She gave up on her life that she might have a better life, but she didn't realize it then. It wasn't like it was laid before her and said, well, I'm going to give up on this because I see that there's something better. She didn't see that there was something better. Instead, she said, what really matters is I'm stepping out. I'm committing to this in faith and I'm trusting. I'm trusting the God of Israel. I'm giving up my life so that it might make the life of Naomi better and Man, God worked in that. She was, she is now in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She was one of the women that that God used to bring his son and to redeem the world because of her commitment and her faithfulness. And this is, this is such a challenge for us. This idea that we are committed to what we love, that love is ultimately what stems our commitment because we as a culture have a great problem with commitment. Especially my generation. I'll throw that out. Our, our, you see it. Our desire to get married goes later and later. And then when we get married, it doesn't work out very well because you see that the commitment isn't there. Why? Ultimately, because the, it's not because people aren't committed. It's because they're committed to the wrong things. They're committed to the wrong things. The Bible says that every single one of us is a committed person. We're all committed. The question is, what are you committed to? What are you committed to? Are you committed to God or are you committed to yourself? Romans Paul talks about it like this. He says in Romans 6:12, "Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instru- instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace." Ultimately, we are enslaved and we will be committed to, to either God or sin. We can't help it. And listen, what we are committed to will either, either sh- it shapes us. What we are committed to shapes us. So, and it, it doesn't just shape us, but it shapes everyone else around us. We were going through old wedding, uh, or we were going through, um, baby pictures in, in preparation for the wedding. My mom sent a bunch of baby pictures. And so we were kind of like starting to look through them. And, uh, and we looked at him, there's a couple baby pictures with me, like where I am just being born. My dad has a basketball in my hand, you know, like, and he's like, he like hands it off to me and like, no wonder, like I'm addicted. I love basketball, you know, like I love playing it ever since I was little, not only that, but you know, I think I was probably two or three and you see my dad having a big large mouth bass next to me, you know? So like he's holding the fish up next to me and I love fishing. And so and so we see it. We see it that what we are committed to, what we love, it gets passed down. It doesn't just affect us, but it affects all those around us. And that ultimately when we have a disordered love, it's gonna lead us to disordered of commitments and it's gonna lead us to a disordered life. So um, to give a, a practical example of this, because, um, one of the things I desire to do is in preaching of the word is to not just talk about the text, but to share my life. Is that I want to use my life as an opportunity just to demonstrate that we are all broken, we're all sinful, but also of God's grace. Um, love fishing, um, absolutely, uh, it's my escape. And so I find times away from it, uh, from, from everything else. It's kind of the, the way that I get away. Um, but there are times where my heart has a disordered love towards it. There are times where my heart will put it above things where it doesn't deserve to be. And therefore, my commitment to it will take the commitment of other areas in my life in which they should be at. And one of those happened probably like a month and a half ago, two months or so. Um, Emily probably going to get embarrassed, so I'm going to share this. But I had made a commitment to her um, that we were going to have date night, we were going to be here, and I was going to be here at this time. You know, and I went out fishing. My phone died and I totally forgot and I came in, you know, like an hour and a half late, totally missed it, totally blew it because I had disordered love, disordered commitment in my heart. And I come in and I find her just broken, you know, because, because it had hurt her, because it had wounded her. Um, and ultimately because my loves were disordered, because my commitment was disordered. In that moment, you realize, you realize that ultimately, um, you hurt the people you love. When your commitments are wrong. Then when you don't love God first. And when you don't have the priorities in your life. Ordered and the commitments correctly. You wound and you hurt people. And sometimes you don't even realize it. Sometimes you think it's an accident. And so what it looks like. At least what it looked like for me is to repent. And so what that means is it means to. And so this is I want to practically challenge you. As well as what the Lord practically challenged me. Is what in your life. Are you committed to that destroys you. What sin in your life or what is something perhaps that is good that has taken over and has grown into something that is unhealthy and strips you of, of good commitments? Perhaps there's something the Lord's even bringing your mind now and you can see that these are areas of my life that I'm committed to that I shouldn't be. The average American spends about four hours a day watching TV. They're more committed to watching TV than they are committed to their families, than oftentimes especially to the Lord. I know for me, working in K life, I saw that sports became something that people were committed to at any cost. That they would give up times worshiping, they would give up times being with the Lord in order that they might de- devote and dedicate themselves to being excellent in a sport. Whether it's a work, and you're saying, in the, in the in the in the strive for being excellent. I just don't have time to, to get in the Word. I don't have time for prayer. I'm just so busy. I, 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 you know, like Sunday service and being with the people of God and being in a life group, you know, like those just aren't really important things for me because you see, this is just more important. What you don't realize is that it's a slow fade, slowly and surely you commit yourself to these other things. You think they're pretty good things, right? Working hard, sports is a good thing, you know, making a healthy income. Those are, those are good ambitions, right? But you have a disordered love when those things begin to take the place of God. And what you don't realize is that it will lead to your destruction. It will hollow your life to where it is thin. And there's nothing there of substance. And what it looks like is it looks like for us to repent. To admit that we have a disordered heart. That we are loving things that will destroy us. And will lead us to be hollow and empty. And to realize that we need to once again fall in love with Christ. That ultimately, when Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all of these things will be added into you, he actually meant it. It's actually true. If you apply it, if you, it's amazing. We hear God's word and then we think that was nice, but then we don't apply it. And we think, man, my life's just not working. Everything's falling apart. Well, it's because we're hearers of the word, not doers of it. It's because we sit and we want to absorb a message and we can repeat things, but we don't actually want to apply them to our life. We don't need, we don't need to hear another message. We need to apply the messages that we're hearing. We need to take the truth that God has revealed to us and live it out. And I'm preaching to myself here. So how do we see Christ in this? Right? Because hopefully by now all of us are kind of in the same boat of saying, yeah, we fail. (laughs) Yeah, we have some areas in our life that are disordered. We have some loves that are out of balance. We have some places in which we are committed to that we shouldn't be. Some places that um, are actually causing us hurt and pain, and not only us, but we see how it's gonna be passed down, and it's not just hurting us, but it's hurting our family, our spouse, it's hurting all those around us. Here's the here's the good news. Right? We see Jesus in this, and Jesus exemplifies his hesed love, his committed and loyal love to us. First John First John four seven through nine says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The good news is that we aren't saved because of our ability to be committed to God. God ultimately doesn't love you because you're strong and you have a great moral ability to cling. God loves you because he chooses to be committed to you. Because despite our fickleness, despite the times that that we have disordered loves in which we give our lives to idolatry, God promises and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have begun a good work in you and I will bring it to completion. We can rest Because ultimately we know that Christ is the one that has pursued us. And that is pursuing us. And if you're here and maybe you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God loves you and he's pursuing you. He's been pursuing you before you were born. Before the foundation of the earth, Christ has loved and died for his people. Allow that love to rescue you realize, comes, come to the realization, come to the knowledge that what you've been giving in your life to is not satisfying ultimately to your destruction and, and give it up. Die. Say like Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Die. Give yourself up and realize that your life is found in Christ and only in him. For us as Christians... Remember, once again, that God's love is what allows you to be committed. That each day, the way that you are committed isn't by commanding yourself to love God, but it's instead by realizing how he has loved you. The clear picture that you get of who Jesus is and of how he has loved you, the stronger your love for him will be. You see, we are like a mirror. We are like the moon. We can't create our own light. We can't make a, a, a image. Instead, we reflect. We reflect. And so when you realize that you were made to reflect, then you will be desperate for the sun to shine upon you because you will reflect his light. Each day, each morning, We want us wake up and the first thought, the first thing in our mind must be that I am beloved of God. That God loves me not because I'm good, but because he is good. And that love will never fade, will never perish. And ultimately when that sinks into your heart, when that clicks from being an idea to being reality, you can't help but love. Think about it. In your relationships, when have been the moments in which you've loved greatest? It's been when you've seen someone's commitment towards you. Right? It's been when you have done something. For me, going back to the example, when I, when I failed, when I messed up, and Emily still chose to forgive me and to love me, that was one of the moments of greatest grace And that was the moments of closeness when you realize not that you're worthy of love, but instead that love is an act of grace. And when you wake up and realize that God loves you as an act of grace, that is what will propel you to love him. Not out of duty, not out of self-righteousness, but instead out of joy, out of thankfulness, because you can't help but love him because of how good and what he's done for you. So we see Jesus and that he exemplifies what it means to love. Second thing, and, and what we'll end with, is that we learn about Christ through Ruth's story um, because Christ shows us what it means to be a kinsman redeemer, right? This is a, a weird term for us. We've, we don't really have kinsmen redeemers in America. Um, and so what this idea is that um, a kinsman, right, kinsman means to be a relative of. And redeemer means to buy back or to purchase back, okay? So what it means is it means that there's a relative that is going to purchase back or buy back something. And so Boaz is a relative. He's related to Ruth or, well, to Naomi. And so Ruth goes to him and tells him, and it it talks about in Leviticus 25 as well as Deuteronomy 25, if you want to look it up. Uh, later, I'll read a brief one. Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-five. It says, "If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold." And so, because they left the land, because they left Israel and they went to Moab, they forfeited their land. Their land was, and so Boaz came to buy back their land, not simply to buy back their land, but also to preserve their name. And so one of the things that they did in Israel was that the family name was really important. And so when people would, you know, when there would be a a husband that would die, then it was a family's obligation to take on that person, to perpetuate that name, so that 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 one would have offspring, so that the the brother or the, the person that had died, their name wouldn't be extinct, so that they would have inheritance, right? So that their land, the land would ultimately continue to be passed down. We think of inheritance as like a bank account and his money. They thought of inheritance as the land and as having a, a portion of the land that was passed down from their family to their family. And so Boaz came to buy back so that they would have a name that their family would continue to go on and that the land would be purchased back. And ultimately we see Jesus in this. Why? Jesus came and he became like us. It's called the incarnation in which God put on flesh. He stepped into our world and put on humanity that he would relate to us. We don't worship a God who is far off in distance and doesn't relate to us. We worship a God who instead knows exactly what we go through. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to mourn and to have loss. He knows what it feels like to rejoice and to celebrate. He knows what you're going through. He's not far off in distance, but he's near. He relates to your circumstances So he's our kinsman. But more importantly, he is our redeemer. The Bible teaches that that all of us have been sold into sin. That we are born as enemies of God, separated from him. That sin is something that's in our hearts. We're sinners by nature, but we also sin because of choice. In Ephesians 2, it talks about that we were enemies, that we were slaves to the God of this world. But Jesus came to redeem us he came to save us right and a redeemer has to pay a price for the thing that he is redeeming we were cursed and separated from god and so jesus came and paid the price and he was cursed and cut off from god that we might have his position of beloved and redeemed and brought near to god he swallowed the wrath that was due to us that we might receive the blessing that was due to him we see that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In Titus 2.11, Paul talks about it like this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Jesus came and he redeemed us. He redeemed us for a purpose, though. He redeemed us that we might be his people. A people zealous for good works. He didn't redeem us that we would continue to walk in sin and slavery. Instead, he redeemed us that we might be set free. And so... As we conclude, my practical application, how we can not be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, we can take this message and and practically walk it out, is what is it in your life that God has set you free from, but you're still walking in slavery to? What are you being committed to that God has called you not to be? And where is God calling you to be committed to? Look at your time. Look at your your energy. What is it that your heart desires Look at your finances. These reveal what we love. These reveal what we're committed to. Realize that Christ gave all of himself for you. He gave all of himself. He didn't hold back and put you in compartments, but instead he gave all of his life, and he desires that we would give him all of our life, that we wouldn't put him in compartments. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you love us, God, and that uh, our... Salvation uh, is ultimately dependent upon your faithful and steadfast love for us and your grace. God, I pray that we would be challenged um, to to realize your love towards us and that it would move us to love you and to love others, Lord, that from that love for you and our love for others, that that healthy and life-giving commitments would flow, that we would be a people that honor our word, that we would be a people that are committed, Lord, not simply because of obligation but out of joy and love. I ask that you would clarify through your Holy Spirit what that looks like in each of our lives, Jesus. Help us, help us even this afternoon, Lord, to live out the commitments that are life-giving and are healthy, Lord, that we wouldn't be slaves of sin. Oh, we love you, Jesus, and we thank you. We give you praise and glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.